0: Invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning. In your Old Testament, to the book of Second Samuel. Second Samuel. We are in a series in Second Samuel. It's an historical book covering 150 years of Israel's history through the uh, ministry of the prophet Samuel, through the reign of King Saul, and now heading into the reign of King David from roughly 1120 B.C. to 971 B.C., but even more than a a history, we find a theological purpose for this book. There's truths about God that we need to see and hear and apply. And one of the threads tying through the books of Samuel is the truth of God's rule, that God is all about Demonstrating his right to rule and setting up his rule on earth that one day his kingdom will be established on earth. Now one of the underlying fundamentals of the books of Samuel is that God is Israel's king. God is the only one that has the right To rule. Saul and later David were representatives of God, but ultimately God is the one who has the right to rule. God is Israel's king. And we see David yielded to God's rule in his life. As we come to the events of 2 Samuel chapter 2, fifteen years have passed. since God through the prophet Samuel had David anointed as the future king of Israel. Fifteen years. Twice in the book of 1 Samuel, David had opportunities to kill Saul. In 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, David could have taken the kingdom, but he chose not to. He waited on the Lord. He waited on God's promises. And as we come to... Second Samuel chapter 2 this morning, we see still David acknowledging God's right to rule in his life. God's authority. And he demonstrates that by not taking a step without seeking God's guidance. So this morning as we read through this long section, 2 Samuel chapter 2, notice how David is dependent on God for guidance in his life versus a general from King Saul's army, a guy named Abner, who is going to act according to his own plan and the results of that. Let's start reading. I'll read out loud from the New American Standard Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitis, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his own household. And they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and their anointed David, king, over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. And I also will show this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong, be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Machanaim. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner the son of Ner went out from Machinaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by count, twelve for Benjamin, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. Each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And Asahel was swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Asahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out his back and he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. When the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which is in the front of Gia, by the way, of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. Abner and his men then went through Ereba all that night, so they crossed the Jordan, walked all morning, and came to Mahanaim. Then Job returned from following Abner when he had gathered all the people together. Nineteen of David's servants, besides Asahel, were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men died. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron so we find in second samuel chapter 2 two men whose lives are set next to each other one who is not going to take a step without seeking The hand of God. He wants to know what God's will is for him. David is yielded to God's rule in his life. He recognizes God's authority. And he's not going to act until he knows that he's being obedient to God. Versus this commander of Saul, Abner, who's acting according to what he thinks is best, that will promote his purposes, That will put him into a position of power. One man depending on God, another man depending on himself. And all through it, we're going to see that God is still in control. This has been a fun week. For my wife and I, because our little nine-and-a-half-month-old granddaughter has taken her first steps. And my daughter-in-law sent us a video this week, which I have watched over and over and over and over again, as little Eloise stands in the room waits for her mom to reach down and Eloise will grab her mom's finger and Jesse will walk backwards and Eloise is just walking, holding onto her mom's hand. And word has it at the end of the week, she's soloed. Now we look at that and say, well, that's a kid. That's a baby, taking baby steps. But how often are we not told in the New Testament that as adults... We need to have a childlike faith in our God. And David here has a childlike faith in God because he's not going to take a step until he sees the hand of God. And that's where we find David. As this chapter opens in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And there's a principle here for you and me as well, that all of us as believers... Express our dependence on God by asking Him for guidance. We acknowledge His authority in our life, His rule in our lives, by coming to Him in prayer and asking for Him to show us His hand, to guide us in the decisions that we make. And that's what David does here. Notice with me, as we come to chapter 2, remember Saul is dead. His son, Jonathan, is dead. And it's now time for David to take on the throne. Fifteen years earlier, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, God had instructed his prophet Samuel to anoint David with oil as the next king of Israel. David has waited 15 years. Now Saul has passed away. David has had his period of mourning, and now it is time for him to to ascend to the throne, but it's not going to be easy. As we're going to see in this chapter, the north has been led by one of Saul's generals who is going to put another man on the throne as king, one of Saul's descendants, a guy named Ishbosheth. This will be troubled waters. A good business plan is not going to be the total solution for David to bring unity to the nation of Israel, yielded to his leadership as their king. He's going to need God's guidance. So we come to chapter 2, verse 1, and it simply says this. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. Where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Now this is an important city. We know from the book of Joshua, chapter 21 verse 13, that it's a city of refuge, one of those main cities appointed by God, that if someone is accused of murder, even though they may be innocent, they they have a place to go to seek refuge so that the siblings or the children of the person who's passed away doesn't come and just kill them so it's a city of refuge we also know from Joshua chapter 21 verse 13 that the descendants of Aaron that the priests who have descended from Aaron some of whom would be high priest reside here and we also know from the book of Joshua chapter 14 and 15 that Hebron was a city that belonged to Caleb. You remember Caleb when the spies went in for Israel? Shall we go in and take the land of promise? Ten came back with a bad report and two came back with a good report. And Caleb was one of them and said, let's go. Let's go conquer this land. If God is with us, who can stand against us? Caleb is one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. Well, we see here in verse 2 that David's wife Abigail was the widow of a man named Nabal. And we know from 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 3, that Nabal is a descendant of Caleb. So this is almost like David coming home. His wife, Abigail, was married to a descendant of the people who reside there. It's an important city. It's probably the central city of Judah. And God says to David, Go... Now what's important for us to see is that first of all, before David takes a step, he seeks the Lord. And then when he knows what God's will is for life, for his life, what does he do? Look at verse 2. So David went up there. You see, he not only ascertained what God's will was, he then did it. He goes to Hebron. And we see in verse 4 that the men of Judah gathered around David, and they anoint him as the king of Judah. This is the second time David has been anointed as king. The first time was in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, when Samuel the prophet anointed him as king over Israel under the direction of God through the prophet Samuel. Now, the men of Judah recognize David to be their king, and they anoint him, and we will see a third anointing here in the book of 2 Samuel, where David will be anointed as king over all Israel. Now there's a problem. God's plan is for David to reign over the entire kingdom of Israel. But we're going to see in chapter 8 that while Judah is anointed as king over the southern tribe of Judah, the north is going to follow Abner and a king named Ishbosheth. David is going to need guidance from God. Now, it's always hard in our lives to find balance, isn't it? Here we find great balance on the part of David because he does have a plan. David just doesn't stay in his prayer closet and pray and pray and pray and pray and and never come out. He asks for the Lord's guidance, he hears from God, but then he actually takes action steps. We notice with me in verse 4 that he hears that the men of Jabesh-Gilead treated Saul's body well at the risk of their own lives. They went into the battlefield where the Philistines were, where Saul was killed, and they retrieved his body, and they bring him back and bury him properly. And David knows that these men of Jabesh-Gilead are supporters of Saul. So David sends word to them through messengers and says to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, verse 5, because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. Now this is this is wise on David's part. He's recognizing these followers of Saul as being honorable men. And he uses a very special Hebrew word here, the word chesed. You have to kind of spit. It's very guttural. Chesed. And he says to the men of Jabesh Gilead, You have shown chesed to Saul. You've been kind to him. It's a special word because when it's used of God toward his people, it often carries the idea of God always demonstrating his loyal love to his people. So there's a little play on words here. David says, Men of Jabesh Gilead, you have shown chesed to Saul, so may God show chesed to you. May you experience his loyal love his loving kindness and truth the new american standard says a better translation is the word faithfulness may god always be loyal in his love to you and faithful to you and now men of Jabesh gilead i have something to share with you you have been faithful i'm going to show goodness to you by the way i am now the king of judah and i encourage you to show that same courage and follow my leadership Notice the end of verse 7. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. You see, David is working a plan, but he didn't start working his plan until he inquired of the Lord. He's depending on God. It's not that he just stays in his prayer closet. It's not that he just acts his plan out and never talks to God. No, there's balance here. He inquires of the Lord, and then he acts. David seeks God, and then he takes action. Now, how did David hear from God? That's an important question for you and me to ask. It tells us in verse 1 that David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And we look at that and say, well, if I could just ask God, should I do this or that? And God would say, do it. That'd be simple. I'd ask him all the time. Man, those guys were lucky. We don't know the verses. Don't tell us how God affirmed to David. Very well could have been a verbal voice from heaven. Or it could have been through a prophet. David's pathway that he has often followed during First Samuel is to, to ask for the ephod to be brought to him. This, this garment worn by the high priest across the breastplate that would house through little pockets the urim and the fumim. The urim and the thummim were used to determine God's will. They may have been stones, they may have been sticks, some believe it was a bright stone and a dark stone that would be cast out and the way they fell would be yes from God or no from God. We don't know here from the text, but it's clear from the text that David clearly heard from God. And we can say, well how do I hear from God? These guys were lucky. They had a prophet, or they they could just hear from God directly, or they had the Urim and the Thummim. Actually, we are in a better position today than David was then. Because we not only can hear from God, the New Testament tells us that we have God dwelling within us. That Every person who is a Christian, every person who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross as payment for our sin, and rose again from the cross, proving that he's God, every person who's dependent on Christ, who's trusted in Christ, at the moment we put our belief in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into us and takes up residence there. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even a Christian. I want to take a few moments and turn to the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17, and remind us of the privileged position that we have with the indwelling Spirit of God dwelling within us and having the complete Scriptures in our hand. John chapter 14 Tells us in verse 17, I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 says the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. We go to chapter 16, verse 13, and we read, He, referring to the Spirit of God, will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And then we come to chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Here's what the Gospel of John is teaching about the Spirit of God and the Word of God. The Spirit of God dwells in the life of every believer, and the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and teaches us. This is the only book that God has ever written. It is God's Word to us. And the indwelling Spirit of God takes the Word of God and teaches us, guides us, fills us with the knowledge of His will as we read it. And the Spirit of God takes it and impresses it upon our hearts and our lives. Our youngest son lives up in North Dakota. We don't get to see him often, so if we want to see him, we... Uh, frequently need to go to North Dakota and see him. And it works out that sometimes the best time to go see him is in December and January. Some people, when it gets cold, head to the Gulf Shores or Texas. We go to North Dakota. We embrace winter. We laugh at the face of cold. Well, when I go up to North Dakota, I have a friend who farms up in North Dakota, and he took one of his outbuildings and built a man cave. I mean, it is a man cave. It's got a stove in the corner, like a, uh, wood burning stove. It's got a flat screen TV. It's got sliding glass doors. There's guns everywhere. You can just grab a clip. If a coyote walks by, you can just slide the glass door open, shoot the coyote. It's great. Rabbit goes by, you shoot the rabbit and have it for supper. I mean, it is just a great man cave. Well, on, and that's where I stay. Well, on the wall of his man cave is a big sheet of plywood designed for throwing knives. That's a guy thing to do. Let's throw knives. So you grab some knives and you take a few steps back and you throw the knives at the plywood. When my wife stays with me in the man cave, we do not throw the knives. But when I'm by myself, I throw the knives. And I'm not very good at it. Some people have kind of a knife-throwing view of how to determine God's will from the Scripture. In their mind, you take your Bible, you tear out some pertinent pages, you put it up on the plywood, you take a few steps back, you ask God a question, God, where shall I live when I graduate from college? You throw a knife. It hits on a verse that says, and then David headed south to such and such a city. And the person who threw the knife says, That's it? I'm moving to Georgia. And that's how they think you determine God's will from the Scripture. That's not it. That's a dangerous way. But I know people that that's how they think you find out what God wants you to do. Let me tell you how to find out what God wants you to do. It's simple. Be obedient. We read Scripture And we look at God's parameters for our life, the commands that he gives us, the principles that he gives us, and we say, am I living within those boundaries? A young man comes to me and says, I'm trying to figure out if I should marry Jill. Well, tell me about Jill. And as he talks, I take him to 1st corinthians chapter 7 where it says in 1st corinthians chapter 7 at the end of the section a wife is bound to her husband as long as her husband lives but if her husband is dead she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the lord now there's a principle there it's a new testament principle that if you are a christian that you are believing that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross as payment for your sin and rose from the dead, proving that he's God. If you are depending on Jesus Christ and you want to marry someone, if you want to stay within God's parameters, you should only marry a Christian. A Christian young man should only marry a Christian young woman. A Christian young woman should only marry a Christian young man. And as we told our boys, not only a Christian, but someone who loves Jesus. Now, that's God's will. Now, what if Jill's a Christian and Abby's a Christian? We pray. We say to God, God, I'm going to claim James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I'm firmly convinced that if we as believers in Jesus Christ are aligning our lives within God's parameters as they are revealed by Scripture, His commands and His guidelines, that He will guide our steps as to the specifics. And we can take confidence in that. We can seek godly counsel We can ask Him to give us a level of peace in our lives. We can ask Him to open doors and close doors. What's important for us is to ask the question, am I being obedient to God's revealed will? What David did is what we need to do. Demonstrate our dependence on God by first seeking guidance from Him. And then acting. Now in comparison to David, we have this guy Abner. If you look at verses 8 through 11, it tells us that Abner is the commander of Saul's army. Abner takes action without asking God for guidance. And by doing so, he's ignoring God's authority. It's not a mistake that this account of Abner is right next to the account of David. Our human author wants to see the difference. Wants us to see the difference. When we take action without asking God for guidance, we are ignoring His authority in our life. And when we do that, all kinds of turmoil and trouble will result. Here we find Abner. Now, notice with me in verse 10 that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is only king for two years. Even though verse 11 tells us that David reigned over Hebron for seven years and six months. Evidently, here's what's happening. Abner, the general, the five-star general of Saul's army, has been Running the northern tribes. He is assuming authority. But Judah has a king. And most likely Abner is trying to bow to the people of the northern tribes. And so he says, fine, we'll have a king too. A puppet. And so he goes and anoints Saul's son Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is the face in front of Abner's power. Abner is making a power move here. Ishbosheth is a terrible king, and we're going to see that next week. He's weak. He does stupid things. Abner doesn't seek God at all. He's just trying to hang on to power. It's a power move. He is trying to promote himself. And he doesn't seek God at all. He's just acting independently from God. My wife and I have three sons, all in very close proximity. And in their formative years, we used to take family vacations to Colorado in the summer a couple of reasons it's where my mother grew up i always went to colorado in the summer and trout fished and hiked and i wanted my sons to experience that but also it's cheap you can get a two bedroom condo still today for 75 bucks a night in summit county it's great we didn't do the expensive stuff if the boys said look can we go do that luge that costs 40 dollars a person no you can't if you want to do it grow up take your family there we are here to hike and that's what we did. We hiked. we do a morning hike. we do an afternoon hike. We might even do an evening hike. Now, our oldest son has always been independent. Oh, my. He's just independent to a point of frustration. When he was uh, uh, early in high school, he went on a youth ministry trip from here at Faith Bible Church. And our youth pastor was trying to gather all these students together. It's like herding cats sometimes on these mission trips. And we couldn't find Grant. And there he was, up at the counter, trying to check in on his flight. He's just, he's always been that way. I don't need anybody, I'm just going to do it myself. So he informs us, while we're in the mountains, he's just going to go off by himself. I'm just going to go by, my, he's in seventh grade, I'm just going to go by myself. No, you're not. And I, you don't know what you don't know. You don't even know how we got to where we are now. You have no water with you. You don't know that almost every afternoon in the mountains it rains and you have no coat to keep you warm. You don't know that the fact that there's mountain lions up here, you don't know what you don't know. And here, Abner does not know what he doesn't know. But he doesn't care because he's making a power move. He thinks he's got it under control. He is going to promote himself and he doesn't seek God. And we see the result of that in verses 12 down through 32. And here's where it gets frustrating. Because in your life, you may very well be following the model of David. You're seeking the Lord. You don't take a step without asking for God's guidance but you're smack in the middle of a culture where there's people all around you who don't honor God's authority at all. They're just doing what's best for them. And so you're supposed to be working alongside of, in the midst of a culture with men and women who aren't honoring God's authority and doing what's right in their own eyes and acting according to what they think is best, And you're trying to follow God. And what results is turmoil and mess. Everything can seem like it's out of control, but here's the truth that we see in 2 Samuel. Even when people take action without seeking God, and life seems out of control, God is still in control. He's still in control. What do you do when you get into a situation where everything is messed up because people around you are promoting themselves and not following God's plan? We preach to ourselves, and this is what we say to ourselves. God is still in control. As we come to verses 12 through 32, we see the result of Abner's grabbing the kingdom. And we're going to see the results next week and the week after in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Because here we see the precursor to civil war. What happens is Abner, the commander of Saul's army, and Joab, the commander of David's army, end up being together at this pool of Gibeon. And uh, Abner says to Joab, let's just settle this here and now. Let's just have a winner-take-all contest. It's kind of reminiscent of 1 Samuel chapter 17, when the Philistines said, we're going to put out one guy, you put out one guy. Whoever wins takes all. We're going to put out Goliath. And Israel put out this little scrawny kid named David. Well, that's what's happening here. So we see that 12 guys from Abner's army, from the tribe of Benjamin, come out. And 12 guys from Joab's army, followers of David, come out. And uh, it tells us in verse 16 that each goes to his opponent. They each grab each other's heads. They each thrust their swords. And all 24 men die instantly. So we have this battle to see who's going to win. And all 24 die. There's blood everywhere. I mean, it's out of control. In fact, after the 24 kill each other, we see in verse 17 that a skirmish breaks out, and it says the battle was severe. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. We know from chapter 30 that when this day is done, 20 total of David's followers are dead, 360 of Abner and Saul's followers are dead. It's a mess. It gets worse. One of Joab... That would be the general of David's army. One of his brothers takes off after Abner. He wants to kill Saul's general. And it tells us here down in verse 18, this brother is named Asahel. And it tells us he's fast. I mean, he is fast. And so we see this picture, this guy who's a track star. He's running after Abner. And Abner turns around and says, Asahel, stop chasing me. Go to the right or the left, but stop it. Doesn't help. Asahel keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming. Abner yells out, stop chasing me. Go to the right or to the left, or else I'm going to have to kill you. And what am I going to say to your brother, Joab? Doesn't help. Asahel keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. Finally, Abner is so tired of this, he takes his spear and he turns it around. He doesn't want to kill Asahel. He takes the blunt end of the spear, and he's like, hey, I'm going to at least break this guy's rib. But you remember, you got a track star chasing him, and the track star is coming fast and furious, leaning forward. And Abner takes the blunt end of the spear and thrusts it toward Asahel, trying to break a rib or something, and it goes clean through him. All the way out, and drops dead. There's blood and guts everywhere. Life is out of control. And then we see Joab and the other remaining brother, Abishai, now they take off after Abner. And this section is going to be important later in the book. We'll get back to it. And finally, Abner yells down to these guys in verses 26 through 29. says, isn't enough enough? We are both Israel, we are all Israelites here. Why don't you guys stop this bloodshed today? And they finally relent. You see, what happens is this. We've got one guy who's been doing a power play. Another guy is trying to follow the Lord. And as a result of the one guy's power play, life seems out of control. But it's not. Keep your finger here in 2 Samuel. I'm just going to make quick reference back to the book of Ruth. If you remember the book of Ruth, we have this beautiful story of a woman and her two sons. And the woman who has the two sons loses her husband, but her two sons have married. And both of this woman's sons die unexpectedly, early of age. So the mother-in-law says to her daughter-in-laws, who are not Israelite at all, Go back to your parents' house. There's no future here for you all. But this woman named Ruth says to her mother-in-law, You know what? I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to let your God be my God. I'm going to honor him. And your people will be my people. And we see at the end of the book of Ruth in chapter 4 that Ruth, this Moabite woman, she's not even an Israelite, ends up marrying a guy named Boaz. And a baby is born to them. And we see right at the end of the book, that baby is named Obed. And later we see that Obed has a son named Jesse. And then we see Jesse has a baby named David. And as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see this baby David, whose great-grandpa, their great-grandmother wasn't even an Israelite who had terrible things happen to her in her life, loses her husband as a young woman. This, this, this young man, David, this great-grandson, is anointed as the future king of Israel. And now when we come to 2 Samuel, we're going to see in a few weeks in chapter 7 that God is going to make a promise to this great-grandson of this Moabite woman. He's going to say to him, you are going to have a throne that will never end. Upon your throne will be a kingdom that will never end. And your descendant will reign on your throne forever and ever. And we know from the New Testament that that descendant is Jesus Christ. You see, God is in absolute control. David's throne will be established. Even though because of a man's selfish actions, life seems out of control. It doesn't mean that God's not in control. God is working his plan our first move shouldn't be strategy or popular opinion but inquiring of the lord you may be here today and you feel like your life is as messy as chapter 2 verses 12 and following people may not be literally dying all around you but there's guts everywhere it's just a mess I encourage you, if you feel a burden today and, and you want to pray with someone, one of our elders will be back in the prayer room. Go back and pray. Or maybe you're here today and you don't even know if you're right with God or not. You don't know if the Spirit of God's living in you or not. I encourage you to go back, and our elder who back, who's back there will be able to give you some information on how you can take your own Bible and find out how you can know for sure you're in right relationship with God.